morning, everyone. It is so awesome to be here with each and every one of you today. And again, this is just a great month to just celebrate uh, the season, family, friendship, people, but as well, it's our time when we actually get to really celebrate and reflect on who Jesus is and who he is in our life. And so I want to encourage you this month to even maybe think about this a little more than at other times because people are actually feeling this way, that you would bring somebody to church with you this month to one of our gatherings, to uh, our wonderful Christmas party, or even our warm and Christ-centered Christmas Eve service that we're going to have. Pray about it. Believe God that he can change somebody's life just like he's changed your life. Well, Christmas is literally only three weeks away. Can you, can you believe that today? I mean, it's something that's, uh, uh, as it kind of comes each year, it, for me, it kind of sneaks up on me again. I know that there are some people that spend months and things planning for it, but for me, it kind of sneaks up on me. Now, did any of you growing up still, or maybe you still do, who here has ever done or is doing an advent calendar? You remember the, the calendars that you would start in December and you'd open up the little boxes in it. Now, if your parents were, you know, were cool about it, you know, you got something with maybe some candy or chocolate, and, and it was really great until somebody, and I'm not going to say who became impatient and then would open all of the boxes at once and eat all of the candy before you got to baby Jesus on the 25th. It was something that was, we kind of had fun with it. I might have been that person. You know, there are so many thoughts that I have about Christmas, so many crazy things. I remember when we actually would count the sleeps until Christmas because you would wait for that magical day, that magical morning. You'd pray that there would be snow. I remember as a kid, I prayed for snow. As an adult, I pray that it won't snow because you wanted the possibility of maybe missing a few days of school or, or having a, a, a white Christmas. You know, the decorations, all of those things are just incredible. But what I know now that I didn't know then, there were things that I didn't see that were going on. Um, the planning, the preparation, the shopping, and the inviting of people to things. What I once was magical, it began to change a little bit when you could see behind the curtain. Do you know what I'm talking about? The hustle and bustle. Jockeying for parking spots at the mall. Who, who, who here enjoys that? Uh, when you, you're, you're racing to find that one spot and somebody cuts you off or they feel like you cut them off and maybe they uh, say some things that aren't very kind to you. Uh, staying up all night now uh, because of the computer age, waiting for that best deal to come open online. Um, having an enraged power shopper uh, snatch the last video game right from under your nose and kind of act like, well, that's just too bad, so sad for you. Who here does full-on baking binges where you cook cookies and stuff and everybody in your family thinks it's wonderful, but you spend days, even weeks, getting all of this stuff prepared? You know what? It takes a lot of work, and in time, it's easily easy to become stressed out over it. You know, the holidays that were meant for fun and for wonder can give you indigestion if you're not careful. And my favorite part about it, or my, not my favorite part, the most interesting part is that you spend weeks and months planning for that big day like Christmas, and then it's over in like 30 minutes. It's all gone. All the presents that you picked the time up for, it's over. And the question that I have today 
is what is the meaning of all of the stress, the worry, and the frustration? Why do we make such a big deal of this season, or why do we do what we do? Have you ever felt at times, whether it's Christmas or, or other things that you do in your life, that sometimes what you're doing feels a little bit meaningless or pointless? It could relate, as we saw in the video, to a degree you're, pers- uh, you're pursuing or a new career or even self-improvement. It could be your marriage or other family relationships. You can feel like you're putting in all of this work to make things great, and yet, It just seems like at the day, well, did I even accomplish something? Did anything really happen here? In the Bible, there's a story about a man who had everything and had experienced everything. But at the end of it all, he concluded that everything around him was meaningless. If you would turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to look at a scripture uh, about a man by the name of King Solomon. And this is what Solomon says at the end of his life. This is him reflecting on life. He says, everything is meaningless. Who's here encouraged today? Isn't that an exciting, inspiring scripture? Says the teacher, he says, completely meaningless. He says, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets and then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and it turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Wow. Inspiration, encouragement. Today we are beginning a new series called All I Want for Christmas is Blank. There could be, there's many things that we're going to talk about. Here's my question. If you could have anything, anything in the world, what would it be? What would it be that you would really want? Now, I'm not just talking because we're at church, you give the Sunday school answers, but what really is the thing that's deep down inside of you that you want? Is it great fame or fortune? Maybe it's friends or more meaningful relationships. It could be peace and joy or or maybe a better marriage. It could be less stress and more fun. Maybe the cry of your heart today is, God, just give me better health. Or maybe it's freedom from a addiction or, or hang-ups or habits that, that are holding you back. Our lists might be different, but we'd all have something that we want, wouldn't we? We all, when we really get down to the core of it, have things that we desire. Today we're going to look at finding meaning in the middle of the madness. <laughs> finding meaning in the middle of of the madness. The account of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and really the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about a king named Solomon who was at the end of his life was basically having a reflection. Now the question would be how could a king, especially a successful king, have such a depressing tale? Why would he be speaking the way that he is? 
I would not blame you if you felt a little bit discouraged hearing his futile story. And at first glance, it seems like it would be unlikely that this is what he'd be saying. But the Bible talks about this man because the, who he was and what he was all about, that, that it just seems like out of all the people in the world, he would be the last one that would be giving this type of an account. Because the Bible seems to indicate that he was the most successful man the earth has ever known. He had everything a human being could ever want. He was not only a king, but the king of the most powerful and prosperous nation on the earth. That's what he presided over during his time. His military army was the strongest and most feared on the earth. And this was set up thanks to his father David, who was a great warrior. Because of David's conquest, Solomon never really had to fight anybody he, he had peace because people just didn't want to mess with Israel. He was popular. He had great wisdom. The Bible mentions that he was the wisest person who ever lived or will ever live. People came from everywhere to hear him explain science and, and, and different things in nature they couldn't understand as well as solve problems and riddles. Everyone was enamored with him. Solomon was the guy you wanted to know. If you could get to see him, you would have been like, wow, this is the most cool thing on the planet. He was loaded financially. The Bible says he had so much gold and silver. Think about this, that these precious metals were as common as stones or, or rocks in his kingdom. <laughs> in fact, they wouldn't even eat with silverware. No, in his presence, they ate with gold utensils and everything that they used was made of gold because they just had so much of it. He was surrounded by maids and manservants and cooks and entertainers and he had a great team of leaders willing and ready to meet anything that he needed at a moment's notice or upon a whim. He dined on delicacies to his heart's content as food and wine flooded his kingdom in abundance from all the nations of the earth. Are you starting to get an idea? He, he, this, he had it, it was really good. It took 13 years to build his palace because it was so extravagant and large. In fact, what, what's always been interesting to me that he actually built uh, the temple of God, which was an incredible thing. It only took seven years to build the temple of God, but 13 years to build his house. Think about that for a moment. You want to talk about what he went around with? Well, when it comes to transportation, he had 1,400 chariots and 14,000 horses that were part of his stable. Well, to top it off, he was good looking. Why not? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a lot of ladies to make happy. I'm just telling you, that's a, that would be exhausting on many, many fronts. But here he is at the end of his life, and he says that all of it is meaningless. The pleasure, the fame, the money, the getting of everything a human can desire did not bring him fulfillment. But somehow in his life, it produced a sense of emptiness and hopelessness. You know that feeling when you've had just a little too much chocolate cake? 
You know, when you first see the cake, you're like, oh, I just, I need the cake. I, I, I want the cake. And so you begin to eat the chocolate cake, or maybe because we're at Christmas time, it's the pumpkin pie. You know, after you've had all of the food and you get that piece of pumpkin pie with the extra whipped cream and you start eating it and all of a sudden you reach that place where you're like, I don't want pumpkin pie or chocolate cake anymore. It makes you kind of sick to your stomach. And maybe you've had that place in your life where you push it a little bit too far. And now maybe there are certain foods that you can't eat anymore because you just, that when you see it, it kind of reminds you of that. Well, what really was happening here was I think that this is what Solomon is expressing. He had pursued everything that his flesh, that his soul could ever want, yet there was something that was still missing. It didn't provide fulfillment. So where do we then find meaning and fulfillment in our lives? What is it that's going to give us what we want to really see? And I think this is so important for us because sometimes we we look around, we, we look at people, we look at the things that they have, and we say, you know what, if I just had a little bit more, I would be doing better. And yet God's desire is that we'd understand where our true fulfillment comes from. I believe that many during the holiday season have similar thoughts. Around us we see the ideas of joy and happiness, but inside of ourselves or or because of our life's experiences, we question, what is this life all about? We can come to a place where we arrive at the end of ourselves or say, is that is it? Actually, I experienced this this summer with my family. We went to Universal Studios and so at Universal Studios, we decided the, the big ride there, and again, I'm not a fan of, of this, uh, of Harry Potter, but it was the ride that everybody said you, was supposed to be so cool. And we waited in line, I'm not kidding you, for three hours. And I remember that I got to the ride, got on the ride, finished the ride, and I was like, Really? That's three hours of my life that I will never get back again for that. I don't know if you've ever experienced disappointment like that. You waited for something. Maybe it was a, a new book and you read it and you're like, really? I waited for that? Or you, you, it, We can experience this in so many ways. So where then can we find meaning? Well, I've got a few things that I want us to look at that will help us understand where we get true meaning. First of all, I believe we get meaning through creation. A few weeks ago, I was flying from Portland to Calgary. I was on an airplane. Now, Portland, it's where I was born. It's a beautiful city if you've ever been there. There's trees and hills and and rivers and all sorts of wonderful things. And I remember going to the airport, and as we we were taking off, we ended up taking off because the airport is right next to the Columbia River. And it goes up the gorge. And I just remember seeing this river that was winding through. I was like, man, this is so beautiful. It's so awesome. And then as we turned to head north, we went by something else that I was very familiar with. I grew up within an hour of Mount St. Helens. And I got to see this dormant volcano, this massive mountain with a humongous hole in the middle of it. And it was just awe-inspiring. It was breathtaking to see Well, then we began to travel over the wheat fields of Washington and into northern Idaho, and eventually we hit the Rocky Mountain, the prestigious Rocky Mountains that are just so awesome. 
I go there sometimes to Banff and I look at the being surrounded by these majestic mountains and you can just see the handiwork, the, the nature of God and everything around you. It's just an incredible thing. You see, when you really look at nature, it's impossible not to see design. Not to see intention or purpose. You see, in order, I believe this, for there to be design, it goes to reason that there must be a designer. Is that correct? And for there to be a designer, it would follow reason that the designer had intention for the design. In Psalms chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, it says this, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. Each part of creation was designed to glorify God. Mountains are cool. Rivers and oceans are amazing. And sunsets and full moons are breathtaking. But the most marvelous, marvelous, marvelous part of creation is you. You and I were made in the very image of God. He breathed his spirit into your life. And because of that, we have to figure out, well, what were we designed to do? What is the meaning of our life? Well, our design was really that we would glorify God with everything that we have. You were created with intention, design, and purpose. There isn't anybody here that was a mistake or an accident. You were placed on the earth for such a time as this. And the heavens, the Bible declares, rejoice at your existence, that you are here. What does this all mean? Well, it means that your life has meaning. And to unlock the meaning, you must get to know the designer who is God. And you get to know the designer by learning and understanding your life manual, the Bible. I believe this, if you want to discover meaning, you have to go to the source. You don't look other places to find meaning. It won't happen in relationships. It will not happen through your work or your job, but it comes through understanding who God is and knowing what he says about you. Can I hear an amen? How else do we find meaning? Well, this one isn't quite as nice, but it's part of our journey. We discover meaning through our trials and our difficulties. But what do you mean? What about the the pain? What about the challenges and the disappointments? Well, those are for a reason. God doesn't initiate them necessarily, but he allows us to go through them. There was a time in my life where I believed that once I reached a certain level of maturity, I would not need to go through more challenges. That life would become much easier. Who here knows that's a fallacy? You know, I thought, man, my life has been pretty rough, but there's got to come a point where you kind of learn the stuff that you need to learn, and then you just get to live and enjoy life. But I began to discover that's not how God operates, that God operates through this. God says, you know what, there are things that I, I want to teach you. I want you to grow because I'm preparing you for something greater. And once you master those things, I've got more for you. Well, that doesn't sound very exciting. Maybe that's why Solomon was having this conversation. Life is meaningless. That, that doesn't sound very, like very much fun, but it isn't until you get the right perspective. You see, God is not the originator of pain. 
That comes from sin that entered the universe and is manifested through people's free will, that God gives us free will to make our own choices. But what God is completely about is growing us and preparing us for greater opportunities. God will allow us to be in difficult situations so that we might shine his love and glory and dark, dark glory to the darkness and the people that are around us. Can I hear an amen? It also reminds us of our frailty and our need for his strength. Who here today would say you need more of God's strength? Well, how, what can I compare this to? It's like riding bikes. It's like having your kids ride a bike. Who remembers teaching one of your children how to ride a bike? You know, when they learn to ride a bike, it, it, it's a, uh, I, I think for dads, we're kind of nervous. We're like, okay, you got to do this. Moms are like totally freaked out because they're like, my kid is probably going to crash. And the reality is, if you're going to learn how to ride a bike, you're going to crash the bike. It's going to happen. And that part of the process of learning how to ride a bike is that there's going to be skin knees as well as uh, bare knuckles that are going to get beat up a little bit. But here's the reality. If they don't go through that process, if I didn't allow my, my son to go through that process of learning how to ride a bike, if I, if I wasn't prepared for him to be able to fall down a little bit, for him to be able to go through a little bit of pain, who here knows he would have never learned how to ride the bike? What does riding a bike have to do with what we're called to do in life? It has to do with everything. That that is how God operates you see, and we have to be open to see him and to see meaning through all of it. Because trials will propel us to grow. They will motivate us to change. And I know this, that a lot of times they will give us compassion. Who here knows that the world needs more compassion? And James talked about in his great book of the Bible in chapter 1 about that rejoicing in our difficulties, why? Because it brings us to a place of maturity. It builds character. Where else do we find meaning? Well, number three, we find meaning through worship. Did you know we were created for worship? You and I were created to worship God. But what is real worship? We, we, we use that word. Is it the lifting of our hands and singing songs on Sunday morning? Well, that's part of it. That's part of what we can do. Worship is also, is it, could it be the way that we, we live our lives, the way that we, we go about doing our business? Well, there's an ad, aspect of worship where there should be in what we do. But worship really is sacrifice. Did you know that worship is about sacrifice? Or you cannot have true worship without sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the Israelites brought animals and grain or whatever they had, and they would give it as a sacrifice. They understood that true worship was something that needed to cost them something. In fact, we see places where King David in the Bible, what was, what, there was a plague that was going on, and he, he went to the, a, a field where he saw the soldier of the Lord getting ready to strike more people down, and in order to stop it, he decided to, to make a sacrifice, but he was in another person's land, and he realized that in order for the sacrifice to be real. He needed to buy it. It had to cost him something. He couldn't just accept it for free. We were called to, to bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of God or of ourselves. 
Worship is manifested in the giving of ourselves to God. When I lose or give myself, my life finds greater meaning. You cannot find meaning through self-focus or self-service. See, that's the quandary that people all around us are struggling with. And at times, I think even I struggle with it. That somehow that, that, that by, by taking care of myself, I'm going to find meaning. And God says, no, the way that you find greater meaning is through worship, through the giving of yourself, through self-sacrifice. Many times we're afraid to give ourselves to God or to a service. Why? Because we're afraid we'll lose our identity. But the truth is, that's where we find our identity. We're afraid that we'll be taken advantage of. Well, that could be something that man does, but that's not the way that God operates. That we'll be used up, and and at the end of it, there'll be nothing less. You see, this is where we grow to put our trust in the goodness of God. That's part of our worship. So worship is this, that it is acknowledging the goodness of God through how we live. Living God's word, the Bible, that we honor him. Manifesting the character of Jesus. Losing our life for his gain. And praise is proclaiming the goodness of God and how he lives. His decisions, his greatness. It's how good he is. So my question today is, how is your worship? Are you pointing people to Jesus through how you live? Are you declaring the goodness of God in every situation? Are people... Are you living to please yourself? Are you seeking to make a difference with people around you? I remember when I was in college, I had a doormate that really drove me crazy. Have you ever had somebody that just really drives you up a wall? Now don't look at your husband or your wife. That's not fair. That's not good today. We're getting close to Christmas. It's a good month to be kind and nicer. Actually, all the time. Well, this guy was driving me Nuts, and I, and, I, and I made the mistake of, I, I got frustrated with him, and so I began to speak badly about him to other people. And I remember I was praying. I was at Bible college, hallelujah, ah, angel. So I was praying, and God spoke to me and was like, that's not right. You need to go and apologize to this person. Well, I was like, God, this person is, drives me crazy. You want me to humble myself? So I remember I prayed and wrestled with God. Who here has ever wrestled with God over a few things that you know it's the right thing to do, but you still want to kind of hold out for a little bit, even though you know you're going to lose that fight. And so I, I, was, I was wrestling with it, and I remember that I finally decided to go to him. And I remember as I approached him, I felt like I, I just wanted to crawl into a hole. I didn't want to deal with the situation. But I remember going to him, and I, as, I, as I humbled myself, something inside of me died. Well, that's worship. You see, it was a sacrifice to humble myself. Because at that moment, part of my flesh, part of the things that needed to go, it was dying. And here's the thing about God. God just loves the smell of burning flesh. I don't like it so much, but he does. Because it brings an aroma that's pleasing to him. I knew in that moment, I remember that as I walked away, yes, I I maybe didn't walk in that moment. I was a little bit more humble. I was more careful about what I said. But I knew that God was pleased with me because of my worship to him. 
Well, I want to finish with this today. The, the reality of this season is that we find meaning through Jesus, that Christmas is about Jesus. Jesus is what brings meaning to life. He gives, he bridges the, the gap between us and God through his forgiveness. I think about the Christmas tree. Now we live in an era and a time when we get all these fake Christmas trees. I remember back in the day before fake Christmas trees were there, or if you had a fake Christmas tree, you were just kind of weird. That we all used to go to the, the Christmas tree lot and, and buy our, our tree from the Boy Scouts or the Cub Scouts or the, the Girl Guides. Whoever was selling the trees, you'd, you'd pick it up and you'd bring that tree home with all of its needles and its sap and water that you'd have to put into it. And the Christmas tree has become a symbol, really, of what Jesus did for us. A living thing, an innocent thing, a, a pure thing. A tree whose needles are evergreen or forever green is what they're supposed to be. As long as it's alive, it, it doesn't change what it is. And yet it's cut down, it's sacrificed and brought into our home so that we might celebrate its beauty and celebrate the beauty of the season. It's a reminder of what Jesus would become eventually when he came down from heaven to earth, a pure sacrifice, somebody without sin who became the sacrifice for our sin and our shame. I remember I didn't know about forgiveness until I allowed Jesus to forgive my life, to change my life. And the change gave me new freedom. It brought me into a greater relationship with God. It helped me discover my true purpose and meaning. Today, I want to remind you that it's Jesus who helps us understand meaning.